Everyone's doing well this morning. Welcome to our service here at Buffalo Bear Creek. Be glad to have everyone. Have business. Glad to have you both with us. Thank you for coming. Let's welcome the service this morning with a short prayer, please. Son Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you have given us. The fruitful rain, the sunshine of the next week. We ask you to be with us for the service this morning. It was through the coming night and you take tomorrow. In the name we ask you. Amen. I'd like to read a portion of Psalm number 7, beginning in verse 10. God is my shield. He will defend me. He saves those whose hearts and lives are true and right. God is a judge who is perfectly fair, and he is angry with the wicked every day. Unless they repent, he will sharpen his sword and slay them. He has bent and strung his bow and fitted it with deadly arrows made from shafts of fire. The wicked man conceives an evil plot, labors with its darky tails, and breaks the birth of treachery, his treachery and lies. Let him fall into his own trap. May the violence he plans for others boomerang upon himself and let him die. Oh, how grateful and thankful I am to the Lord, because he is so good. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, who is above all lords. And let us sing praise to the Lord this morning, opening our service with hymn number 466. Take my life and let it be. Please stand. Thank Thank you. 
first group at 6.30 in the evening at the Parsonage. John 12th chapter, the Lord, related to the Scots of Mark. Our rather announcement this morning is not a stand for our children's story. It is not my Bible. I know. Isn't that crazy? That's usually an easy question. It's different this morning. Yeah, theology. So, this morning, I thought we would talk about... There's no snacks today. I'm so sorry. There's no snacks today. Because there's treats on the way out. So, today, we're going to talk about something that's hard even for grown-ups to understand sometimes. But you guys are smart. We're going to talk about it. We're going to think about it, okay? So today, I want us to talk about how Jesus' resurrection defeated death. Okay? You see this? You see little wheels turning already? So after Jesus died, you guys remember that happened, Right? After Jesus died, his body was taken off the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They wrapped his body in linen cloth with spices and laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock, and they rolled a heavy stone in front of the entrance. And it looks probably something like that. And people were afraid that Jesus' disciples were going to steal his body. Right? And so the leaders of the Jewish people, with Pilate's permission, sealed the tomb, and they posted a guard outside, armed soldiers. They were ready to make sure that nothing happened. Okay? But no God could stop. No, no guard could stop the power of God. He just couldn't do it. On the morning of the third day, a great earthquake rocked the earth as a shining angel of the Lord rolled the stone away from the tomb's entrance, and the guards fell to the ground in fear. So, I know, I know, that would be like the action movie sequence we would all expect to see, right? But in fact, the angel disappeared, the stone rolled away. Now, you can see in this drawing, you can kind of see the way that they've drawn it. It almost looks like there's a little like a little hill right there. Now, this rock, Sarah, can you stand up for me just real quick? Just real quick. This rock is taller than Sarah, right? So in the picture, it's kind of hard to tell those sorts of things. You can sit So this is a big rock. Can you imagine how heavy that must have been? Very heavy, right? You would probably need several people to move it, right? And so... This was, this was not just a little, like, kind of a thing. This was, 
this was a, a big thing. So the angel appears, and the stone is rolled away, and then the guards all just fall on their faces because they're so afraid of what they see. And that they probably weren't expecting that. They were probably ready for some guys to just like show up and try to sneak past them, but not an angel, right? Okay. So when the first women arrived at the tomb, the angel greeted them with an amazing message. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, the angel said. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. And then the angel instructed the women to go quickly and tell the disciples, Jesus has risen from the dead and he will meet you in Galilee. Can you imagine how surprised they must have been here something like that? It's a big deal, right? So the women ran to their friends with great joy to report the good news. Now, Changing subject only briefly. What is this a picture of? Yeah, an apple tree, right? And we know it's an apple tree because why? There's a picture of an apple hanging on it, right? This would be pretty crazy if it was a cherry tree and there was an apple growing on it. Well, it is definitely at least a branch. We can suppose that if the whole picture were drawn, that there might be a tree trunk over here somewhere, that that branch is coming off of the other little branches here. And we know that it's an apple tree because there is an apple tree. Now, how do you get an apple seed to turn into a tree? Okay, so you eat an apple and you get the seed out to turn the seed into an apple tree. Yes. Except we eat a lot of apples at our house. And we get the seeds out plenty, but our house is not full of apple trees. So there's something missing. What happens in between? It does take time. Time is one thing. What, is, what else does that apple seed need to turn into a tree? Water, sunlight, and soil. It has to get planted, right? If we don't plant that seed, we maybe could get it to sprout. But it's not going to turn into a tree that way, right? It's not going to turn into a tree, right? Once that hard outer shell of the seed. Have you ever touched an apple seed and seen how hard the outside is? Right? Because the little sprout has to get past that outer hole that's hard. Right? So once that outer hole of the seed splits, the sprout can come out. Right? But it needs to be planted in the soil for that to happen. Right? The life of the apple tree starts with the death of the seed. That seed's not living anymore once the tree sprouts out of it, right? The tree is there and it's new life instead, right? <clears throat> and it takes a long time for that sapling to make apples, right? A new little apple tree, when it grows, maybe this tall after a year, maybe, right? And a couple of years, it's going to have to get really tall before it's ready to give us a harvest of fruit, right? We might get just one apple. Right? After a few years, just a single blossom, and you think that farmer who planted it or the gardener who planted it is just waiting the whole time for that first blossom to show us that we're going to get a fruit on that tree. Can you imagine how excited that gardener would be when they get to taste that first apple off of that tree after they spent so long watching and waiting for it to grow? It'd be a big deal, right? If you have a garden and you're excited and you're waiting for something good to grow, you know what I mean. Right? So Jesus was like that seed in a lot of ways. The seed has to die in order to make the tree. 
right, in order to give the tree life. But on the third day after his death, Jesus left the grave behind, and he became the first fruit of our salvation. And that's something that we'll read about a lot in Scripture, okay? Just as a farmer can expect more fruit in subsequent harvest, so we who trust in Christ can expect to one day rise also. And the resurrection means that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. Sin brings death, right? But the one who never sinned took the place of sinners and destroyed death forever. God's promise to Adam and Eve was fulfilled, and Satan was defeated. And that is why the resurrection fills those who trust in Jesus with hope and joy. God, thank you so much for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And thank you for symbols and ideas that are easy for us to understand, like apple seeds and trees, to help us make sense of things that are hard. I prepare our hearts and our minds to listen to your word this morning. Be with us as we think about what we hear. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I will be down in the nursery for anyone who needs that.
Standard Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans this morning. We are continuing our study in this letter from Paul to the church in Rome and looking once more at Romans 6 uh, today. I can find it. Like we, we started this, this section on the, the first 14 verses of the chapter last week and looked really at the first four verses. This morning we'll be looking at verses 5 through 11 specifically. But because it's a, a section that goes together and fits together, I want to read once more uh, verses 1 through 14 together for you today. So look with me at Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lived, he lived to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. <coughs> Fathers, we come to your word this morning and come seeking help. We, we are nothing. We understand nothing. We know nothing without your Spirit teaching us. Spirit of God, would you come and teach us and instruct us. Help us to see. Help us to believe. God, I pray that you would help us to consider ourselves in the light of the gospel. That you would teach us what it means to look at ourselves in the mirror and see someone who is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Help us to do that this morning. Help me, Father, to preach your word faithfully and truthfully, that it may be understood, that it may be known, that it may be believed. God, even this we cannot do without your help. Help us, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
you ever give much thought to time? And I, I don't mean like what time is it. I, I mean like time is this linear progression of past, present, future. Do you ever give much thought in your own life to past, present, future? I think whether we, we give it our focus intentionally or not, I think each of us in some way, shape, or form has to give this time some sort of thought at different points in our lives. And I think it's interesting that most of us think about it in a very similar way. We always... Think of it in terms of past, present, future. We, we view our past as a period of either shame and foolishness, maybe some, some regret, or, or we view our past as the good days that we wish we could have back. But in either case, the past is untouchable. It's something that's gone. It's something that, that yet defines much of what we do and who we are today, but it's something we can't change. If the past is the good days, then I'm trying to repeat it today. If the past is, it is regret, then I'm working to make sure that I never repeat it. And then we think of the present. And, and we may not give much thought to the present other than that it's what I'm doing right now. This, today, this moment, this day, this year is the present. And it's my job to make the most of today. Before it's gone. Before it becomes the past. And then when it comes to the future, we, we may view the future as a place of hope, a place of possibility, a place of potential. But by and large, the future is unknown and therefore uncertain. Hope is like this, but who really knows? And so this is typically how we think of time, right? Past, present, future. And in this view, if you walk through this progression, I think it's interesting where the foundation of this momentum through time resides. We move from the past through the present into the future, right? The past defines us. It's made us who we are. The present is where we are working now, and we are building towards a largely unknown future. And in this, the future is shaped by what we do in the present which is shaped by what has happened to us in the past. But what if it wasn't? What if it's not the future that's shaped by the present, but the present that's shaped by the future? What if your future was known with the same level of certainty and confidence that your past is known? You know, we tell ourselves that we can never truly escape our past, but what if we could? What if our past could be undone? And if both of these things were true, if the past and the future could be changed or could be known without, without doubt, then what would that mean about the present? Hopefully, I, I haven't lost you yet. Hopefully, you're still tracking with me because it's and then we read through Romans 6 this morning, and we focus on these, these few verses in 5 through 11. Now, I, I want you to consider this linear progression of time that defines and marks so much of our lives. But I want you to see it from a different perspective, especially as believers. Because as believers, our history, our, our time works differently. We don't work from a past, present, future perspective. We work from a past future, present perspective. We work from what is known to what is ongoing. 
And your past is known. That's decided. We can't change your past. It can be forgiven. It can be redeemed. It can be undone in that sense. But your past is done. Your future is also known. It is secure. It is confident. It is certain. The future is not unknown for the believer. It's a given. And because the past is a given and the future is given, the present then changes because of it. Because our past has been redeemed, we are no longer who we used to be. Because our future is certain, we are not having to build it or work towards anything. It's already accomplished. And if our past is undone and our future is secure, then our present is where we live out these two wonderful truths. Your past and your future matter to the present. That's, that's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see how your past and how your future in Christ shape who you are today. That's it. What would it look like for you to live out in the present what the past and the future say about you? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through this progression of time, but not from a past, present, future perspective, from a past, future, present perspective. So first, look at me with, in, into the past. The past being who you once were. And we see that Paul is getting us there in verses 6 and 7. If you were with us last week, as we began the sixth chapter, we, we, we looked at these first four verses, and our focus was on our unity with Christ in his death. When, we, when he died on the cross, we died in him. And Paul picks this up again in verse 6, but here he shows its purpose. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, now let's just break down these verses here. Paul says, We know. That's how he starts the verse. We know that the old self has been crucified. Paul is assuming knowledge here. He is assuming that, that what he is saying is not anything new to the, to the Roman church, and it shouldn't be anything new to us. This is something that Paul the Apostle and the Roman church and us here being priests should know. This is truth. So what is it that we know? We know that our old self has been crucified. Oh. In, in, in Greek, that phrase, old self, literally means, is, is translated, our old man. And he's not talking about your dad. He, he, we use this, this language of, of old self frequently. I mean, think of an addict who's been sober for a decade or more. And he, he runs into an old buddy from his past who says, let's go out of the town, let's live it up one more time like we used to do. And hopefully, the addict being freed and, and, and rescued from that life of addiction will say, no, 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 I don't do that anymore. That's who I was, that's not who I am. That's the old me. We, we use this, this language all the time to talk about our old self. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It's the same language. So who is your old self? What, is it, what does Paul mean by it? It's, it's quite simple. Paul is referring to who you were before placing faith in Christ. That's the old you. And we like to, to think of this, this old self as some small part of who we once were. It's my dark side, my sinful nature, 
And even though I'm mostly good, I have this dark side within me, and that's the old me still fighting to get out. It's about to take so. The old self that Paul's talking about is, is a whole self sort of picture, not a part of you. It's all of you. So, Pastor, I know that I did some bad stuff before I was a Christian, but I wasn't all bad. I, I was still good. But you see, the problem with this mindset is, is that it is a limited scope of sin. And if, if sin is limited in its scope, then the rescue and redemption of Christ is also equally limited. If I wasn't all that bad, then Christ only died for a few parts of me and not for all of me. He died for the parts that needed rescuing. But it'd be like a doctor coming into the, this operating room and saying, well, he's not all dead, just his heart and his brain are dead. That doesn't make sense. So when we think about this, this old self, when you think about your old self and who you were, I, I want you to see that we're not just talking about a few bad decisions in your past. Or a couple of bad days that you've had one time. We are talking about whole person here. Who you were from beginning to end. And Paul continues, he says, about this old self. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus. This is what we talked about last week, so I won't go full dive here, but quick recap. By faith, we are united with Christ. We are one with him, just like we were one with Adam in the Garden of Eden. We, that's what we said last week, that when, when Adam sinned in the Garden, we sinned. And when Christ died on the cross, we died. But now look exactly, look at what Paul says specifically, who it was that died on the cross with Jesus. It's not who I am today, but it's the old me that died on that cross. John Scott is helpful. He says, what was crucified with Christ is not part of me, or, or not what I call my old or my sinful nature, but it was the whole of me as I was before Christ saved me. See, Christian, everything about who you once were, not just your past mistakes and your failures, not just the way that you used to think about the world around you, the desires that you had deep within your heart, the love that you shared, the, the plans that you had for your life, that entire whole person of who you were, the old you, that person was crucified on the cross with Christ. They died. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, why does it matter? Why are we talking in such extreme fear? And why are we talking about it having to be our entire self that dies in Christ? Why not just the bad part? Well, to be quite honest, this is an all or nothing sort of deal. Paul says that we know that our old self is crucified with him in order that, or for the purpose of, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That entire old self, that entire old you, had to die in order for you to be truly free from sin. If only part of you died in Christ, then only part of you has been saved by Christ. And if only part of you is saved by Christ, then none of you is saved by Christ. 
See, here's the, here's the good news. If that old you hasn't been, in fact, crucified with Christ, and that means that all those sins and all those regrets and all that shame and all that guilt that you've carried around with you for years and years and years, that all those things that you used to do, those are gone too. Because the person that carried those things and the person that did those things and the person that, that was capable of doing such horrible, horrible things, that person is dead. And you, as you are right here this morning, Christian, you are free from that person. From that old you. That's what verse 7 says, doesn't it? For one who has died has been set free from sin. You are free from the old you. Free from the past you. Free from who you once were. Not partially, but wholly. Because that old you died in Christ. And this is what we sing in, in, the, in the hymn. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. In Christ, Christian, you are not who you once were. That old you is dead. And this is wonderful. So that's your past, who you were. But look with me, skip the present for a moment, and look at your future, who you will be. And Paul picks this up in verse 5, as well as verses 8, 9, and 10. Because it's often that when you hear pastors and other Christians talk about our being united with Christ, we, we talk a lot about being united in both his death and his resurrection. And, and so we say things like, your old self died with Christ on the cross, and when at the same moment that Christ walked out of the grave, you too have been raised from, from death into new life. That if our old self died, then our new self is the one that walked out of that grave with Jesus in the past. It's that new self that currently walks in newness of life today. And this is, this is clearly, this is taught throughout the New Testament, this past tense language when it comes to resurrection. You can uh, write it down and read it later. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, When we are dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him. Past tense. God did this back then. Our union with Christ and His resurrection is in the past. Because I died with Christ, I have also been raised with Christ. Yes and amen, this is true. But the past resurrection isn't what Paul has in mind here in Romans 6. I mean, you can, you can see it. Look at, look at verse 5. What is the verb tense that Paul is using? What time frame is Paul looking at? He says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, past tense, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's future. And it's the same again in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Future tense. This is a union with Christ that has yet to happen. And you can read through the New Testament and you'll find similar references to this future re resurrection, something that has not yet happened. 
And yet at the same time, you'll find the very same author often in the same language. Talk about the resurrection and past. So which is it, Paul? Is the resurrection something that happened in the past, or is it something to look forward to the future? And Paul would say, yes. I think part of the reason why Paul writes it like this in, in Romans and in other letters that he writes to churches, I think it has to, a lot to do with the heresy that spread through the early church. He, he writes to, to his little protege, pastoral protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He writes to Timothy warning him of, of certain people within the church, and, and thankfully Paul names things. Love that about Paul. He's not when, when there's false teachers in the church, he doesn't shy around it and say, There's some people among you. No, he, he calls names. This is, this is what he writes in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 17 and 18. He says, Their talk will spread like game dreams. That's an image, isn't it? Their talk will spread like game dreams. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, naming names, who have swerved from the truth. Saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So one of the early heresies that Paul is, is trying to correct and trying to avoid is saying that the resurrection has already occurred for believers. And there are people, there are men in the church, in the Naeus and Philetus in Ephesus who are doing this, as well as presumably others, who are saying this resurrection of the believer has already happened. Paul says you need to be careful of these men because they are upsetting the faith of some. Now why would this upset the faith? If the resurrection is in the past, why would this upset the faith of the believers today? I mean, think of it this way. If the resurrection has already happened and you and I are still stuck in these sin-filled broken bodies in a broken sin-filled world, then we've missed it. Our future, our hope, everything that we're banking on still to come has already happened. And we missed it. So what are we believing in? Why are we still here? What are we waiting for? We've missed it. You can understand. I, I think we can understand why this would upset the faith of some people. It should. So Paul's writing very carefully here in Romans to make sure that he doesn't even give a hint of this heresy. The resurrection has not yet happened, believers. Still to come. And he doesn't like this. He writes this way because his primary purpose is not to teach you some new truth. He's already assuming you know this. He's He's wanting you to see that you have confidence and security and certainty in the future. The future is already mapped out. It's already planned. It's already done. We're just waiting. And your future as a believer, Christian, your future is wrapped up entirely in the belief that one day the dead in Christ will be physically resurrected. See, the goal here is confidence in the future. The goal here is that you, that who you will be is certain. You don't have to guess. You don't have to, to wonder. I mean, look at how Paul provides this confidence. He's wanting to give us certainty, security in the future. And so he sort of lays out these building blocks. It's like he's, he's playing with theological Legos. And so he just sort of stacks one on top of the other. 
Look, look with me. Let me just show you these, these Legos that he's playing with. So, the first is in verse 10. Paul says, For the death he died, talking about Christ, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The death of Christ was to and for our sins. He submitted to the power of sin and death. He gave himself up to their authority and he died under sin's power. But this death that Christ died, because he had no sin himself to die for, he died once for all. It does not need to be repeated, and it is applicable to any and every believer. That's the first Lego. Christ has died. Second Lego that Paul stacks on top of that, Christ was raised from the dead. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead, this is not for debate, this is known. Christ has died, Christ has risen. Third Lego, on top of this, because Christ has been raised, death is dead. Again, in verse 9, we, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. See, since he died to sin and for sin, he dealt with sin once for all. Sin is finished, it is paid for, it is atoned, it is done. And since that payment was made in death, God, finding his payment acceptable, raised Christ from the dead. There's no reason for him to stay dead. So he came back. So stay with me here. Christ died, which defeated sin. He rose from the dead, which defeated death. And because both sin and death have been defeated, death now submits to Christ, not Christ to death. Which means Christ will never die again, ever. He is invulnerable, he is invincible, he is indestructible forever. Not even death can touch him. Christ died, Christ rose again, death is dead. Fourth block, Lego, that, that Paul is putting on here. She says, the present life of Christ is now for the glory of God. Because he has done this. This is what Paul says in, at the end of verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Because he has done this, Christ now sits at this very moment at the right hand of God living and interceding for his people. And his life, which is proof of his work being finished, his life is now lived to the glory of God forever. He receives all the glory through the salvation of his people for all time. So if you're still tracking these, these blocks that Paul's building, the last block that he puts on top of it all is that because of all this, because Christ died, because he's risen, because death is dead, because now Christ lives for you and for the glory of God, now, Christian, your future is secure. Because it resides in the hands of one who cannot be touched by death. Verse 8. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Did you see this? 
Being, being united with Christ in his death means that your future is not only safe, not only hopeful, not only maybe the, the best outlook for your life, your future is a guarantee. It is fact. You are no longer who you once were, but you can know without a shadow of a doubt who you will one day be. You will. Everyone in this room, this will happen. It doesn't matter your age. This day will come. You will one day die. Your heart will stop beating. Your lungs will empty of oxygen. Your brain will power down. And you will die. And in that moment, Christian, you will be with the Lord right then and there. Absent from the body, present with Christ. But one day, after this, Christ will return. He will remake his creation. And when this happens, when, when Christ returns, your physical body, the one that we will bury in the ground when you die, that body will come back. It will come out of the same place that we bury it. And this body will be new, and it will be beautiful, and it will be glorious, and it will be everything that it was always meant to be. There will be no pain, no sickness, no death, no punishment, no fear, no tears, no nothing. When you and I believe in Christ, this future is not just, I hope this happens. This future is, this will happen. Period. Who you will be is known. It is guaranteed. It is secure. Not because I say it is. Not because we really believe strongly enough that it will be this way. Your future is secure because it rests in the hands So why does all this matter today? What impact does our past and our future have on our present? We see it in verse 11. Because really this has everything. Our past and our future has everything to do with what we do today. Paul says in verse 11, he says, So then, because of your past and your future being known and dealt with, so then, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me just give you two, two ways that this impacts our lives today. Next time, uh, two weeks, we'll come back and we'll finish uh, this section 12, 13, and 14, and we'll look at some more commands that Paul gives, some, some imperatives. But here, let me just give you two. Freedom and hope. Freedom and hope. The first, freedom. Look, look back at the end of, of verse 6 with me and, and notice something. Do you see how Paul talks about, about sin? He says, Our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, there's two different ways that he talks about sin here. Body of sin and enslaved to it. But, but really, this is just two sides of the same coin. First, he says, So the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Before becoming a Christian, and this is true of us, it is true of every non-believer today. Before becoming a Christian, before faith in Christ, you were a slave to sin. And we'll talk more about this as we finish chapter 6 in a few weeks, but, but think of it like this. Sin, sin was your slave master. 
And as such, this master had control over your physical body, over your mind, over your thoughts, over your heart. He was your master. And you had no choice in this matter. When your master issued a command, you obeyed. In the story. And even your best deeds and your best days were tainted by this slave master holding his reins over your life. Paul says that when you died in Christ, and when you placed faith in him, not only was this slave master of yours defeated, but your physical body was now set free. There's a lure, an attraction of sin. It makes sin so enticing and seductive and tempting. And what Paul is saying here is that you, as a Christian, are no longer bound to this lure of sin. You can actually resist its call. Because the old you is dead. And what the old you loves to do is no longer who you are. And so there's freedom from this slavery to sin. But, but there's another side to this coin. Because being enslaved to sin doesn't always mean that we overtly commit sinful acts. There's another equally dangerous way that we are enslaved There's a, a slavery. Sometimes being enslaved to sin means that we cannot escape it. And I don't mean that we can't stop doing something. It means that we cannot get over what's been done. Sometimes being enslaved to sin means that there's a slavery that exists in a realm of shame. Here's what this looks like. Pastor, I know that God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself for this. The things I've done, I'm just not worthy of love or forgiveness from anyone. Someone's going to find out about who I really am, and then everything that I work for will be totally lost and destroyed. I know that sin is deadly, and I've, I've just been lost in it for so long. I don't think there's any way that I'll ever be free from this. This is going to haunt me the rest of my life, and I've just got to learn to that. That's slavery. There's another word for that. Despair. Being without hope, without freedom, without any chance of ever being freed from sin. But being freed from the past means both freedom from sin and freedom from despair. Paul is building up to, to chapter 8 in Romans, where he will say the very first verse of that 8th chapter, he will say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now. Christian, you are not condemned for your past. Not in the future, certainly not in the, past, in, in the here and now. In Christ, there is now no condemnation, because by faith, you are free. Live in this freedom. You are free today. Free from your past. Free from despair. Free from sin. So live like it. Today. Second impact this has is hope. Let me, let me ask, have you, ever, have you ever planned for a long vacation a long time in advance? 
Right? Like, imagine going home this afternoon and spending time with your, with your loved ones and, and booking a three-week-long vacation for 2024, next year. You, you, before the day is over, you book it. Now, imagine what this next year looks like for you. You may not think about it every day, but at some point along the way, at various stops between now and vacation day, you're going to be thinking about what's coming. You're going to be thinking about all the things that you have to pack and get ready. The clothes you have to wash or the new clothes you have to buy. How many suitcases you need? What car are you taking? Who's going to watch the house while we're gone? What needs to be done with our animals? Are the kids coming? Do we need to bring them or find somewhere for them to go? Over the course of the next year, you are going to be intentionally setting aside time to plan and prepare for that trip. Right? You'd be foolish not to. If the day comes to leave the house and you've done none of this, you're not leaving on that day. I can assure you of that. But this is kind of what it's like for Christians. We have a glorious and beautiful future ahead of us, much greater than a three-week vacation next year. We have an eternity waiting for us. And in light of that, we have an eternity to prepare for. What, what I mean by this is that if you know that the future is certain, that one day you will live with Christ for all eternity, then how you live today drastically changes. There's work to do. There's preparations to be made. There's things to be accounted for. And it amazes me that we take so much time and attention when we are going to leave town for three weeks, that we can spend an entire year preparing for just a three-week trip. And yet we struggle to give even one moment's thought to eternity. So how do we do that? What, is, what does that preparation for eternity look like? It looks like Christ. First hand again, he says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. One commentator writing about this verse says, Paul does not imply that Christ ever lived without seeking the will and glory of God, first of all. But his resurrection has given him new power to carry out God's will and purpose. And the main reason that Paul mentions Christ living to God here is to set up the comparison between Christ and the Christian in verse 11. Christian, your future is secure in Christ, so you are called to live today to the glory of God to seek and to do His will, to obey His word, to make disciples of Christ, to teach, to observe, to counsel, to lead, to serve, all of it in preparation of for the future that you know is coming. The future is not unknown. Christian, the future is a fact. The resurrection is coming, and there is no greater hope for us today than knowing that. But that future hope impacts your life today. So live in hope. Prepare in hope. Get ready for what's coming, knowing that it's certain. There's no questions about what's coming. Prepare for it. Serve. Give generously. Live sacrificially. Love overwhelmingly. Because we know what's coming. I find it interesting that there's 
There's only one command, one imperative verb in these first 11 verses. There's only one thing that Paul is saying, you need to do this. And it's found there in verse 11. The only imperative verb is consider. This is not a passage of do this and don't do that. This is not a passage of, of be better than you were. This is simply Paul saying, consider who you are in Christ. When you look in the mirror, when you wake up in the morning, when you are overwhelmed with despair, with shame, with guilt of your past, when you are racked with uncertainties and questions about your future, Paul is simply saying, consider. Consider who you are in Christ. So that's what we should do this morning. Christian, consider yourself. You are no longer who you were. You are free from the past because the old you has been crucified with Christ. And you are not yet who you will be. The resurrection is still to come. But its coming is certain. So you are not who you were and you are not who you will be. But who you are today is impacted by both both your past and by your future. You are free free from your past today in Christ. Your future is secure today in Christ. So today, Christian, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus today. Pray with me. God, may your word go forth your fruit. It come like the rain. And water the soil of our hearts and bring forth life when there once was death. And let this be done to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we respond to the preaching of God's Word this morning, uh, we respond as we do every week by taking communion together. Uh, Ron is at the back. If you need the elements, just raise your hand and he'll, he'll bring it to you. Um, and as always, let me just give you a quick word of, of advice here, word of instruction. This table, these elements are for believers. If you have placed faith in Christ, if you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, whether or not you're a member here at Air Creek, this table is for you. And not because I have said so or because we declare it to be this way, but because Christ has brought you to his table himself. And I'm not going to be the one that stands in the way to say you can't come today. This is for believers. And if that's you, then welcome to this table with us. If that's not you, maybe. Maybe you're not as free from the past as you would like to be. Maybe those, those sins that haunt you are still clinging tightly to you. Maybe your future isn't as secure and confident as you want to be. If that's you, then let me just hear me on this. It's better for you to put down this cup and not take it and take Jesus Take the real thing. Take the real person. 
and not something that just points us to it. If that's you and you're here this morning, but you're not really sure what to do with it, come find me afterwards. I would love to talk to you about it. Christians, Paul's words, Paul's command is for you to consider yourself. And as you come to the table, that's what you must do. Consider yourself. You are dead to sin. The old you has been crucified. They are dead. Do not live like you used to. Do not be like you used to. You are not that same person. And to remind you of this wonderful truth, we come to the bread. Which is where our old self died. At the cross. The body of Christ broken for you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So Christians, consider yourself dead to sin, yes, but also alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you leave today, live. Live for His glory, live for Christ, live, because He has made you alive. To the King. We'll sing one final hymn this morning before our benediction. It is hymn 474, I Surrender All. We stand and sing.
So before our benediction, uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask our students if you guys will go ahead back into the narthex and be ready. Uh, as you leave today, uh, our students will be back there with Valentine's goodies. Uh, so be sure to, to stop by, drop a donation in the jar, and take some brownies and cookies for you as you go. Uh, members, we have a members meeting after after our benediction, so grab a cookie, grab a brownie, and then come back to your seats for us to go through our, our meeting quickly. If you're not a member here at the church, I'm glad you're here. Uh, but our meeting is, is for our church members, and so I'll, I'll greet you at the back as you leave, and if you would like to be to, to talk about being a member and what that looks like, I would love to talk to you about that as well. Uh, so for our benediction, uh, we say the Great Commission, which is, which is printed in the bulletin for you. Church, say this Great Commission aloud with me. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and break